morning, church. Morning. You open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to continue our study of the book of Ephesians, looking this morning specifically at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. The verses we come to this morning are rich and rewarding in the contemplation of them. Uh, truly, these, these verses stretch the mind of man. And, and they're, they're really more than the heart of man can behold and contain. These verses reach back into eternity past. They reveal the mind of God to us concerning His eternal decrees. And not only that, but they tell us what an impact these high-flying doctrines make on the earthly life of the Christian. Now, I said uh, when we began the, this book uh, a few weeks ago that Ephesians is Paul's most beautiful articulation of the gospel. In all of his writings, it is considered the, the, this most beautiful rendering of the gospel. And one theologian says of these verses that in all of Paul's theology of election and predestination, these two verses are the most glorious of those. Other commentators have remarked that this passage, including the two verses that we're considering this morning, being part of one big sort of uh, run-on sentence, in the original language. One big, what is really a run-on doxology from Paul. It defies any attempt to outline it definitively. But you know a preacher can't resist an attempt at an outline. So, you're going to get one this morning. <laughs> so, as we sit under the teaching of Paul's glorious doxology this morning, praising the sovereign God for his provision of an inheritance in Christ, we consider this uh, couple of verses in three parts. First, we consider the provision of God in God's inheritance. Then we consider the predestination of this provision. And finally, we consider what the product of God's provision of this inheritance should be. So we have the provision of God, the predestination of this provision, and the product of God's provision. So with that in mind, let's take up the text together. And focusing on verses 11 and 12, specifically for our sermon texts, we're going to read again verses 3 through 12 this morning. So begin with me back up in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. 
In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And here's our sermon text for the morning. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, friends. Father, the truths here, you know that we cannot fully exhaust. But Lord, we long to have a better apprehension of them. Father, we we long to understand them to a greater degree. Because we know from what Paul says here, God, that, that when we understand these truths, that it produces worship and it produces praise of you in our lives. And so God, we pray now that you would enlighten our minds, give us minds to understand, and Lord, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts to help us hold on to, or rather to be held on to by these truths at a deep soul level. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I said the first thing that we were to consider this morning is the provision of God. Paul continues his call for believers to render praise to God for the spiritual blessings he's poured out on those in Christ here in this text. Specifically, he calls us to give praise to God for what he calls this inheritance. This inheritance in Christ. Look at verse 11. In him... We have obtained an inheritance. The in him here, again, is referring to the Lord Jesus. And it would be good at this point in our trek through the book of Ephesians to just dwell for a moment here and take stock of how many times we've already heard this phrase, in him, since verse 3. We've been told that it's in Christ that we have all spiritual blessings. So that if someone asks you, how have you been chosen by God? Verse 4. Answer, Christ. How have you been adopted by God? Verse 5. Answer, Christ. How have you received God's grace? Verse 6. Answer, Christ. How have you been redeemed? Verse 7. Answer, Christ. How have you been made wise to the mystery of God's will? Verse 8. Answer, in Christ. And also, if anyone were to ask you how they might experience all of these spiritual blessings, the answer would be emphatically, by faith in Christ. And all of this, friends, it really brings forward the message of this whole paragraph, and it highlights 
the point of these two verses that we consider this morning. The centrality of Christ here is to show that God deserves every single bit of glory and praise for our salvation. And we'll see this morning that very idea more clearly as we move through the text. Moving ahead, though, we find the more difficult part of this verse is in interpreting what exactly the nature of this provision from God called an inheritance is. In light of the original language, this verse, or excuse me, this phrase could actually be rendered one of two ways. The inheritance here that Paul speaks of either can belong to Christians or the inheritance can belong to God. The first option is to understand Paul as saying straightforwardly that, that Christians have come to possess an inheritance which includes all the promises of salvation. Taken this way, we, we understand the apostle to be saying that the blessings of adoption, redemption, and the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, all are ours in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yet the second option gives due consideration to the Greek rendering of the text, the original language. It, it would read something like this. We were taken into an inheritance. And by that reading, the idea would not be that we've been given an inheritance, but rather that we were made God's inheritance. Or you might say God's heritage. This understanding of the verse would be substantiated by verse 18, which clearly conveys the idea that the saints are His, look there at it in verse 18, His glorious inheritance. That is, they are God's glorious inheritance. And whichever interpretation that you choose here, Paul's clearly drawing on the Old Testament motif of the inheritance that was promised to Old Testament Israel. Yet, the Old Testament also makes clear that the inheritance, sometimes called the heritage of God, is His people. Just consider Deuteronomy 32 and verse 9, which says, But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted heritage. Or Deuteronomy 9.29, For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Two options. And having studied this for some time and read several men far more competent than I, I can tell you that I think the the, the answer is actually not one one or the other, but both. And and that's not a cop-out of committing to one or the other, okay? It's a conclusion that's derived from the exegesis of both this phrase under our consideration and the broader passage. I've already said that the Greek here would have us to read this. We have been taken into an inheritance. A rather odd statement, if all that's meant is that we've received an inheritance. 
Yet the reception of an inheritance by faith in Christ is undoubtedly a part of Paul's theology. And it's a part of his thought process here. We see it in his theology more broadly in Colossians, which is the book that's most parallel to Ephesians. Paul says that God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And we know that wonderful passage in Romans chapter 8 that tells us the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And in this very passage, our paragraph this morning in Ephesians 1, this passage, verse 5, says that God has predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. What is the glory of adoption as sons but that we receive the inheritance of our Father? And verse 14 will go on to say that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The meaning is straightforward then, right? That is until we consider verse 18. Look at it, just a few verses down there. Paul prays that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his, that is God's glorious inheritance in the saints. So, what we find here is that in the span of this first chapter of Ephesians, Paul set forth, sets forth both the idea that we have an inheritance in Christ and the idea that in Christ we are God's inheritance. So that it, it seems the apostle is being intentionally vague at this point, so to speak, to both realities. It's as though he's communicating this grand and glorious idea that in Christ we are God, we are God's, and God is ours. A grand and glorious idea. He possesses us, and we possess God in Christ. Which really and truly captures the essence of the fullness of of the spiritual blessing that Paul labors to tell us that we have received in Christ. Let us never forget, church, the essence and glory of salvation is that we get God. What we have been adopted into is the family of God who has redeemed us to Himself, God. We can never allow our contemplation on the methods of God's work of salvation, glorious as they are, we can never allow our meditation on the methods of God's salvation to blur our vision of what we've been saved to. In salvation, Christ has reconciled us to none other than God Himself. He is our reward, church. To allow any work or method of salvation to supplant that reality is to lose the gospel. 
The good news is that by faith in Christ, God lays claim to us, and therefore we can lay claim to Him. So what does that mean? Well, to quote Alexander McLaren, who also takes this interpretation of the phrase, that that this is both us being God's inheritance and us receiving God as our inheritance. He says that it means that both God and the redeemed exist in a relationship of mutual love. It's God's relationship to us that secures our inheritance. And as we are God's inheritance, so He Himself is ours. And this is the basis for any inheritance, right? The very essence of an inheritance, it is that it's based on a relationship to the one granting what is to be inherited. And here we find that Paul not only tells us of the nature of this inheritance in Christ, he says that it's not only, he tells us not only that it's, it's based on our relationship to God, but he tells us the nature of this gift is that the beneficiary can do nothing to earn it. And in that way, we move to the second point, which is that we find that this provision comes through predestination. How is it that we've become, we've become partakers in this inheritance? Paul says it is by having been predestined. Greg did a wonderful job uh, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, explaining the nature of predestination to us. The, the bottom line being that in the scriptures, predestination speaks to God's predetermination. Thus here we find that we are made partakers of this inheritance by God's predetermination. You know, I've, I've, I've heard about and I've seen in movies how some families have these you know, patriarchs and matriarchs that lord a family inheritance over the younger generation in order to manipulate them to do what they want. And this is not the manner of God concerning this inheritance that Paul speaks of here. No, the Scriptures tell us that we are secured in this inheritance, not simply apart from any of our works, but we've been secured in this inheritance since before we were able to do any works. Verse 4 says that the sovereign election of God was set on believers before the foundation of the world. I don't predate the world. I'm just following Paul's logic. We come to this heavenly heritage not because of anything done by us. Unless you think I'm stretching this bit about the sovereignty of God in salvation. We have only to continue reading the verse. You know, Paul, Paul could stop with the idea that we have been predestined for this inheritance. 
And that would be enough to prove that we contribute nothing to our salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. But it doesn't stop there. In an interesting way, that seems almost redundant. The apostle presses this matter. He presses this matter of the sovereign will of God in salvation, saying, look at it there, saying, we have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. We found in verse 9 that this phrase, according to His purpose, has to do with the absolute freedom with which God acts. It underscores the reality that this predestination is a determination that arises from within God, apart from any outside influence. Is then this predestination in accordance with man's goodness? Man's holiness? No. Is it then in accordance with man's intellect? Or knowledge of God? Is it in accordance with man's familiarity with apologetics? No. No. Believers are predestined, says the apostle, according to the purpose of God. And his purposes will certainly be accomplished and come to pass because He is the one, Paul says, who makes all things work together according to the counsel of His will. That term counsel there carries with it the idea of great wisdom and consideration. Effectively saying that this predestination is the product of God's infinitely wise consideration. Which means that God has not purposed to save every soul. Rather, in His divine wisdom, Paul tells us, God has determined to save a specific, particular people that He has considered to set His will upon In Romans 9, Paul articulates the objection that man might have to this. He he anticipates it, really, in Romans 9. And so he just goes ahead and gives a response to mankind's objection to this idea, calling into question the justice of God at His exercise of His freedom as Creator to save those whom He will. How does Paul respond to in Romans 9, to those who would object. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Friends, many people, many good people, many brothers and sisters in Christ have a difficult time with this idea because they have a difficult time reconciling the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And it's not in the scope of this text to investigate that. I'll only remind you of the response of Mr. Spurgeon when someone asked him, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? And with that famous wit of his, he simply responded, I never reconcile two friends. Church, any honest reading of this text demands that the reader understand that in Christ, God has not merely made every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places possible. He has not made adoption, redemption, and our glorious inheritance in Christ possible. No. In Christ, God has accomplished the salvation of those He has predestined according to His purpose. Amen. Given the nature of this text, with all of its clarity, to promote any other idea is to say that God has failed in accomplishing His intended purposes. The logic is clear. If indeed one has been predestined according to God's purpose to receive this inheritance which is exclusively for those in Christ, and that person then does not come to salvation in Christ, then God is not able to work all things according to the counsel of His will. God has failed then. But friends, I am here to tell you this morning on the authority of the inspired and errant Word of God, God does work all things according to the counsel of His will. And it's according to this counsel that He has predestined those in Christ to a glorious inheritance. You know, I've heard it said that Well, regardless of what one thinks about the authority and sovereignty of God in salvation, it's really a secondary doctrine. It isn't necessary to be within the bounds of orthodoxy. And that's true. It's not. Yet, just because something's secondary does not make it unimportant. This doctrine is revolutionary to the Christian life in your walk with God. This doctrine is a gift from a loving Heavenly Father that sets His beloved children on a path that is stable and secure in the midst of a world that is tumultuous and anything but stable. It brings solace to the soul of the one who wrestles with sin 
and the one who's all too acquainted with their own sinful deeds and desires. The security afforded here in this doctrine of predestination is what allows us to take Christ at His word when He says, all that the Father has given to me will come to me and I will never cast them out. And our hearts are able then to sing with the hymn writer as we did a moment ago. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. This is a clear. The security of the believer is so clear as an implication from this text. And that is certainly true. But Paul here actually goes on to apply this doctrine for us. After stressing the sovereignty of God in salvation so much, the, the natural question then is why? Why does the apostle stress the sovereignty of God in salvation so much? And what we find is that he does so in order to stress what is the product of this great provision of God. And so lastly then we consider this the product of the provision. What is this to produce in the life of the believer? Having laid open the mind and will of God as it pertains to the salvation of souls, Paul immediately reveals the mind of God concerning why God has acted in this way and and what this understanding should produce in our lives. Look at verse 12 with me. Paul writes, so that, everything he's just said is true, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Now, this verse does bring to us another exegetical conundrum. Namely, it makes us ask the question, who are the first to hope in Christ? Paul's saying that this application of the doctrine of predestination that he's been drawing out for us, this is it. This is the application. But he makes that application to a specific people. To we who were the first to hope in Christ. So did I miss it? Was I one of the first? That's the question we, we immediately ask when we look at this text. We have to ask, who's he referring to? And, and to determine that, it's important to know that the, the best sense of this phrase would render it, we who have hoped beforehand. And with that sense in view, we can understand that those the apostle is speaking of is all those who have hoped in Christ before His appearing. In other words, the application is for all those hoping in Christ before His second coming. So it applies then to all Christians. So what then is the application of the predestination of believers to an eternal inheritance? Well, Paul says that it is to the praise of of His glory. In other words, the purpose of God's election is so that He alone 
would receive all the glory and praise for this glorious work of, of redemption. That God alone gets glory. That's the application. And this is only logical. If, as Paul has clearly taught here, the salvation of sinners is, is, is predicated on nothing other than the free, immutable counsel of God's divine will, then there can be no boasting on the part of those who are redeemed. Paul spells this out perhaps more clearly in the very next chapter, saying in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Why? So that no one may boast. So Paul says that if you have received the grace of God, you are excluded from all boasting about your spiritual state before God or man. And in teaching this, Paul is is simply joining the long line of biblical authors who taught the same idea. We read earlier from a or excuse me from uh, uh, Psalm one fifteen, where the psalmist exalts the Lord God over every idol of man, praising His sovereignty, saying, "Our God is in the heavens; He does whatever He pleases." And by the way, what that verse means is that everything He pleases, He does. The psalmist exalts the sovereignty of God to do as He pleases. But remember what the exclamation of the psalmist was in light of the sovereignty of God. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Praising and glorifying God is the only right response to a recognition of God's sovereign authority and His sovereign grace. Not only is it the right response, it's the only possible response if you actually understand what Paul has said here. Some people call the doctrine of predestination Calvinism. I call it biblical, but I understand what they mean. And many times... When I talk with people who claim to not like Calvinism, what I find is that they may or may not actually dislike the doctrines associated with Calvinism. Many times, what I've encountered is that they've been put off by those who are somehow made arrogant by the doctrines that they claim to understand. But friends, an arrogant Calvinist is a contradiction in terms. It's in fact an impossibility. If one understands the doctrine of predestination, all boasting is excluded. And there can only remain a, a, a heart of humility that then sings with that hymn writer that says, Nothing! In my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, 
or I die. What's boastful about that? Nothing. And so then, humble-hearted praise flows from our lips. But the praise of our lips is, is not the only way that this doctrine should manifest in our lives. It should also produce a life of praise to God through our obedience to Him. We confessed together earlier from the Westminster Catechism that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And then the Catechism goes on to ask, what rule has God given to direct how we may glorify and enjoy Him? Answer, the Word of God is the only rule to direct how we may glorify and enjoy Him. And finally, then it goes on to say that the Scriptures teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So then, distilling the thorough testimony of Scripture, the flow of the catechism moves from our calling to glorify God and enjoy Him forever to submitting to the commands and instructions of God in Scripture. To put it more succinctly, this doctrine of predestination calls for more than mere contemplation. It calls for real-life application. And that application is a life of praise to God. And a life of praise is one that's characterized, yes, by songs of praise to God and prayers of praise to God. And yes, even our obedient submission to God is an act of praise for His glorious grace towards us in Christ. Church, is my prayer that we would not be a high-minded, big-headed, arrogant Calvinist church. But that we would be a church a people so moved by the sovereign, free grace of God in every individual life here to call them to belong to Himself by a miracle through faith in Christ. That we would be known as a people of joyous submission to God. Not white-knuckled, legalistic, obedient people, but joyous submission to God who encourage one another, who instruct one another in the Scriptures, call one another out in faith, and rejoice to repent when our brothers and sisters call sin out in our lives. There's no other explanation for that than joy from the grace that God has shown us in Christ. There's no other explanation. And so I pray, church, that that is the people that we would be known for. Pray that with me. Father, make it so. I pray, Lord, that you would 
move us with these realities in our minds. Certainly, God, we pray that you would renew us in the spirit of our minds so that we would, in fact, render to you a living sacrifice, as Paul puts it in Romans 12. But, oh God, we do pray that we would not just have big heads and big minds, but this, this rich theology that tomes have been written on. That as we treasure these doctrines together, God, that you would move us to be a people that love and serve both you and one another. And in so doing, Lord, that you would get glory. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.